It's a joy to introduce to you our scripture reader, Mrs. Kim Corbin. Kim and her husband Steve have been here for about 10 years at Bible Center, and they have four children, uh, Jack, Sammy, Katie, and Maddie, uh, four beautiful children. They're involved in a number of ways. We say here at Bible Center that to, to get involved, we worship, belong, and serve. Of course, we worship all throughout the week, but we come here together to worship as a family. And she's found belonging with a number of you in relationships, as long, along with uh, adult Bible fellowships over the years. And, but she especially finds her connection through serving. She serves in our children's ministry, been on our finance committee, and I think currently serves in our three-year-old uh, Sunday morning children's ministry, which is uh, as, as important, more important than what I do here on Sundays, uh, definitely harder. So thank God for Kim and for Steve, and let's read the scriptures together. Thank you. Please turn in your Bible or Bible apps to 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 15. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith, nor to devote themselves to myths and genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law was good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Kim. In season four of Breaking Bad, one of the main characters, Jesse Pinkman, goes to a support group. He feels extremely guilty for something that he's done, something horrible, uh, adding it to the long list of his activities. And he goes to this support group looking for comfort. 
the leader of the support group tells him that it's all about self-acceptance, that no matter what he's done, he needs to just accept himself and get over it and move on with life. Well, this makes Jesse livid. He's angry. He knows there's something about that that's not right. And so in his anger, he tells his group leader this, the thing is, you just do stuff and nothing happens. What does all of it mean anyway? What's the point? Oh yeah, it's all about self-acceptance. The leader tries to calm Jesse down and telling him that kicking himself is not the solution, that putting himself down, that the ultimate answer is again just self-acceptance, self-acceptance to which Jesse responds, so no matter what I do, it's hooray for me. I'm a great guy. It's all good. No matter how much bad I do, you're telling me I should just accept myself. And he looks right at his group leader and he says, I don't accept that. That particular scene is the top five scenes of Breaking Bad in all of its seasons. And it's blown up YouTube. Uh, it, be, it resonates with Americans. It resonates with our culture. And I believe it does so for this reason. We are tired of being told that everything is okay. I believe way down deep, some of us who have grown up being told that I'm okay, you're okay, and then if we would just accept ourselves, all of our problems would go away. Way down deep, we know that's not true. When we shave and look at ourselves in the mirror in the mornings, when we put our heads on our pillows at night, something down deep tells us that something is dramatically, drastically wrong, but sometimes we're not sure how to fix it. What are we to do with our shame? If we're not just supposed to blindly accept ourselves, where is the solution? I believe God gives us the solution in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to take the next few minutes and walk through verse by verse and see how God gives us the truth that ultimately is the solution for our guilt and our shame. If you're taking notes, I invite you to do so either on the app or also in your bulletin. Number one, we see this truth. We are the worst of the worst. Number one, we are the worst of the worst. You got up early. Some of you got the kids ready for church. You rushed out the door ready to worship the Lord, and you couldn't wait for your senior pastor to tell you, you are the worst of the worst. I'm going to ask you to hang on with me for a few minutes because I believe the solution, I know the solutions in this text, but that's what Paul is communicating Backing up, backing up just a little bit to the 30,000-foot level, the Apostle Paul is writing to a younger pastor, Timothy. And to Timothy, his city is Ephesus, just like our city is Charleston. And the book of 1 Timothy is primarily about how the gospel shapes the church. Sometimes people will say the book of 1 Timothy is about how to structure or order in the church. But it's much deeper than that. It's about how the gospel shapes the church. And so he starts off with this typical greeting, but then he jumps right into a warning to Timothy and lets him know that there are false teachers that have crept in the church or potentially could creep in the church. And he tells Timothy, constantly be on guard for those who may teach that which is not in agreement with sound doctrine. 
constantly be on the lookout for someone who teaches error against the gospel. And in chapter 1, he gives us two different categories of error. There's one type of error that I often call heresy, and it's that error that contradicts the doctrine of salvation. There are people in our world today, as much as ever, who would teach us that salvation comes through some other way than through with the simple faith in Jesus Christ. But he also gives us this understanding that there are people in the church who may not be teaching something contrary to salvation, but he calls it uh, endless myths, just continual myths. And he warns Timothy that these myths can take away our heart for the gospel. And so he tells Timothy, if it goes against salvation, teach against it. But even if it doesn't go necessarily against salvation, but it's just distracting people from the gospel and the glory of God, then make sure you step in and protect your church from false teaching. Here's a good principle right out of 1 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 1. If it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. I'll say that again. If it's true, it probably isn't new. And if it's new, it probably isn't true. If somebody on TV tells you that God showed them something and gave them a revelation that nobody in Christianity has ever understood before, let me just humbly encourage you, find something else on TV. Do something better with your time because God has given us the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then he tells Timothy, there are people particularly in your church who are trying to use the law in the wrong way. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, is good, he tells Timothy, but it can be used incorrectly. And so he's going to remind Timothy how to use the law properly. Jesus, like Moses, is a Jew, but Jesus fulfilled the law and launched the new covenant I'll make a statement and then I'll explain it. Sometimes it's good just to have the splash and the shock and awe effect. It's, it's this. Believing that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again is not enough to get you to heaven. Now, before you leave mad, hey, let me fin finish this statement. Believing that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again is not enough to get you to heaven. There's three words that we often leave out of the gospel that God reminds us to include and that I'm inviting you to include in your own understanding and definition of the gospel. On the screen will be 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died. Let's read those next three words together. For our sins. And goes on, in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day. It is possible for someone historically to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and in some work, miraculous work of God, he rose from the grave and still not be a Christian. For the gospel isn't just the fact of what Jesus did, but it's what Jesus did for me. No one ever gets to heaven who does not first know that he or she is a sinner in need of salvation. Here's my point. Remember when Jesus was asked about his mission, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but who? 
sinners to repentance. So this morning we're looking at the aspect of the gospel, including our sin. Week after week through the month of March and April, we're going to be looking at different parts of the gospel message. And I'm concerned, or I should say burdened, that we always include this understanding that Jesus didn't just come to show us morality. Jesus came to save us from our sins. A few years ago, I went to the doctor, had blood work taken, and found out that my TSH was dangerously high. It was like 14 or 15, which I guess is pretty high. And my T3s and T4s, which is like your hormone that you know, makes you a tough guy, those were really, really low. Now, lest anybody think you can whip me after church, guys, it's, I've been on medication for several years, and they're back up where they should be. But I was feeling funny. I couldn't remember things. I was in seminary and was having, having trouble at sometimes uh, connecting thoughts. And so I went to the doctor and come to find out it was something that Synthroid, uh, just a common medication, can fix. And so I take that every day uh, for my hypothyroidism. But when I first found out there was a problem, I wanted to do whatever it took to find the solution. And I'm convinced that when people find out the problem of sin, then they'll be ready to accept the solution of salvation. If we don't know there's a problem, we don't want to change. The same is true with cholesterol. Went to the doctor two weeks ago and she told me my cholesterol is high. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you, but probably two or three of you struggled with high cholesterol. I love bacon. In the mornings... I got into this routine. It's a bad habit over the last year. I got into this routine. I have eggs. Eggs are healthy, right? Right? My doctor's in the service. I won't point her out. But eggs are healthy. I have eggs. I have green pepper for breakfast almost every morning, religiously. Green pepper and usually a banana or some fruit. All that's good. But I have been treating myself lately to some extra bacon. And it started with like one piece or two pieces. And then I got a bigger pan. And you know, you can fit like five or six pieces of bacon in one pan. And Sarah has this thing, you can, you can put it in the microwave and it siphons off the grease and it makes the bacon healthy, but it makes it taste terrible. And so I found if you really want bacon, you throw that in the pan and you cook it and just right, don't quite burn it, but you get it just right till you have to turn on the fan above the stove. And then, man, five or six pieces of bacon later, you are ready to face your day, but you're not ready to face your doctor. But when you see the numbers... And you realize, okay, I have a problem. Then you're ready to do whatever it takes to find a solution. And as we present the gospel to Charleston, may we always remember to include the problem. Jesus didn't just die to give us a, a luxury cruise on the love boat of life. He didn't just die so that we could do good works in Charleston and be able to be a city set on a hill. He also, all those things are true, I'm convinced, in his goodness. But he died that we might also have peace with God because of our sin. Christ died for our sins. And Paul gets very specific here in verses 8 through 11, uncomfortably so. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
If you're taking notes, there's three pairs in verse 9. Uh, one is, the first is always um, passive, and the second one is always active. So he says, first of all, the lawless and the disobedient. He pairs it up, the passive and the active. The ungodly, there's the passive, and the sinners, there's the active. The unholy, and then the profane, passive and active. Most believe this is a summary of the Ten Commandments, and you're going to see it here. He's going to line it up, Commandments 5 through 10, starting in verse 10, or in verse 9. He says, the law is also for those who strike their mothers and fathers. Which of the Ten Commandments does that line up with? Honor your father and your mother. He goes in the exact same order that Moses does. He says, or, or, or it's also for murderers. Which one of the Ten Commandments does that address? Thou shalt not kill. He goes on to the Seventh Commandment. And he says, the law is for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. What particular sin or command is being broken here? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Paul does this. He double-clicks sometimes on different commands depending on what the people in that culture uh, particularly were wrestling with. And so Paul knew Ephesus. He knew Ephesus well. And so he writes and says, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. But we could double-click on that command in any number of ways. This wasn't Paul's intent for us just to pick one, but for us to see ourselves as sinners. Remember what Jesus said? If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've done what? Committed adultery with her already in your heart. So just about the time we're going to pick up the rock and throw the rock across the room, then we remember somebody could throw it at us. Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, that's the word for kidnappers. Ephesus had a vibrant slave market. Uh, God speaks to social injustice. Um, he says enslavers, that could be compared to thou shalt not steal or even thou shalt not covet. Then he says liars and perjurers, there's thou shalt not lie, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. As we read through the Ten Commandments, how did you do? As we read through verses 8 through 11, how many of those commands do you think you've broken? Maybe you just broke one. Maybe you say, well, I'm doing pretty good. It was only four or five. I'm, I'm batting 500. That's not bad. It could be worse. It could be worse. But you know what James 2.10 says? Whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. That means this morning there's not one of us who can go to God and say, Lord, I deserve your salvation. We can't do it. We have all become guilty before God. Paul takes it to the next level in verse 12 or verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, he was against the deity of Jesus. He tried to convince people against the deity of Christ, a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was like the Osama bin Laden to the Christian, early Christian world. He would kill Christians, an insolent opponent. He was arrogant, full of hubris, full of himself, a bully. And Paul says in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the foremost. If you're taking notes, you want to underline foremost in verse 15. And I've never seen this till this week. It's also in verse 16. It's the same exact word. He says, I receive mercy for this reason that in me, I've read it a thousand times, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What's Paul saying here? The word foremost is the word protos. He says, I'm a prototype. I am showing you that when I look at the law, all I can say is guilty. And that's exactly what the Lord wants us to see today. In church history, there was a pastor in North Africa by the name of Augustine. Augustine would often write about his childhood experiences, which is kind of fun to do, start thinking through whether you had a good or bad childhood to see how God has used your story to shape you. And I was reading this week how he wrote about stealing apples. He said he and his friends would skip into this orchard, jump the fence, steal some apples. And most of us would like look at that and say, well, that's what kids do. We probably shouldn't do it. We've all done things like that. I know I have. I never really stole apples. One time, I grew up back at Lakewood Elementary near Lakewood in St. Albans, and we didn't jump the fence to steal apples, but we did jump the fence to bomb Lakewood Pool with water balloons. Um, We thought only the rich kids got to go to Lakewood Pool, and so we decided that we would get one of those big water balloon launchers, and we stood up on the hill. We had three backpacks. We, we, we We covered our eyes, you know, with that, like, whatever the black stuff is you put underneath your eyes. We dressed in full camo. We thought we were sneaky. And we stood up on the hill above Lakewood Pool and just bombed the whole pool with water balloons. And we thought we were really going to show, you know, these folks. But what we didn't realize, didn't think through was, you know, these people are already wet. They really don't care if they get wet again. It really wasn't that big a deal. So as I'm reading through Augustine, he's talking about stealing apples, but it caught me off guard. He mentions about how sinful that was. And at first I'm thinking, why are you talking about it being so sinful? Um, That's a little bit too too hard. Kids are going to be kids. This is what he wrote. When I willed to commit theft of the apples, I did so not because I was driven by any need. I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and much better quality. They only wanted to steal them to throw them at pigs, he said. He said, I did it because I was forbidden, I did it for the sin itself, and I did it because my mother told me not to. And then there's one comment, he says this, sins of childhood differ only in objects, not in nature from the most terrible sins later in life. Our problem isn't that we need apples, but that we want to be the absolute ruler over our universe. We want what we want when we want it. So let's, like Paul, agree we are in need of salvation. We, too, are the worst of the worst. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. But number two, Jesus is the best of the best. Jesus is the best of the best. This is the answer to that problem. Jesus is the best of the best. Verse 11. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. If you're taking notes, a literal translation of verse 11 is this, the gospel which tells of the glory of God. 
It's the same construction as 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's the gospel which tells of the glory of God. What's the glory of God in the gospel? What's the bright spot? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The bright spot of the gospel is Jesus. If you like to write in your Bible, you could circle Christ Jesus our Lord and point back to the word glory in verse 11. Jesus makes the gospel the gospel. Through for, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Thousands of years ago, our ancestors, Adam, Eve, at some point they climbed a tree, took the forbidden fruit, and ate it. Jesus didn't come to tell you to climb the tree and put the fruit back. Instead, Jesus did something drastic. Instead of telling you, you need to just accept yourself and realize it's just fruit. You know what Jesus did? Jesus essentially went back up the tree, climbed it for you, and died to pay for your sins. You see, the difference between Jesus and Muhammad, Jesus and Confucius, Jesus and Buddha, is that this text doesn't say, Jesus came to teach you a better life. But this text says that Christ came to die for our sins. That's why Jesus came. The answer to the problem that's being asked in Breaking Bad and, and all other pop shows, the answer isn't just to get over it. The answer is for us to honestly step in and say, we need a Savior. But thank God our salvation isn't based on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus, who could be the perfect sacrifice for me. I was thinking this week of playing football. We used to play, uh, played two years of middle school football, which isn't much to brag about. Uh, but played football for Hayes Middle School. And we had a quarterback at that time named J.R. House. He went on to play for WVU a little bit and uh, played for, and then going playing for the Pirates. He was good at baseball as well. But in our little neighborhood, J.R. House was the best of the best. And at any time you had J.R. on your team, you just knew you were going to win. And so the guys from across the river, we had the, the big swinging bridge there at Hayes. They'd come across the river, and we would play, and we would divvy up teams in the big soccer field there by the elementary school. And, and we always wanted JR on our team because you knew the key to winning was to having the right guy on your side. And JR would come, his you know, dad sent him to all the camps, and, and he, he had all this, you know, like knee equipment. And even though we were playing Sandlot, he had certain pads because he wanted to make sure he didn't get hurt. And we just knew if JR got on our team, we could get behind him, 
We could enjoy the game because we were knew we were going to win no matter what. We had the right guy on our side. When Paul gets to verse 17, essentially that's the emphasis of the gospel. He's not saying you have the right program. He's not saying you have the right words. He's saying you are saved because you have the right man on your side. And it's Jesus Christ. Again, let me recommend Pastor Tansy's book. It's the Old Testament equivalent to this New Testament truth that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are made right in the sight of God. Where do we go from here? What's the next step? Well, number three, if you're taking notes, yes, we're the worst of the worst. Thankfully, Jesus is the best of the best. But number three, God loves transforming the worst to serve him the best. God loves transforming the worst to serve him the best. In verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You get over to verse 16. In verse 16, he says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Interestingly, our elders have been praying through and we're continuing. God's doing a work in our hearts, but we're looking at how, how this text shapes 1 Timothy 3. When he lists deacons and elders, he's not telling us to find people who've never sinned, but he's telling us to look for gospel men, men who know their position, who know uh, what the gospel has done in their, li their life. In verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to be honor and glory forever and ever, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy that in accordance with the prophecies previously made to you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Essentially, in verse 16, he's saying this, I was the worst, but now I serve Jesus the best. I was the worst, but now I serve Jesus the best. In the New Testament... Think of the people that loved and served Jesus the most. The Apostle Paul is the great example. Do you know outside of the cross, no other Old New Testament story gets more airtime than the conversion of Paul? None. Uh, outside of the cross, no other story. Every time Paul's telling somebody, he says, let me tell you the story. And that's why the book of Acts and the epistles are filled with Paul's story. Let me tell you about the day I got saved. He just always talked about it. But you think back to other people in, in the New Testament. Peter. Remember Peter? Who failed Jesus the most outside of Judas Iscariot of all of his 12 disciples? Peter did. Peter not only denied like the other apostles, Peter denied him three times and even cursed. I do not know this guy. But who did the Lord use the greatest? Peter. Think about Luke chapter 7. Jesus goes to sit down in a man's house by the name of Simon. And Simon also had a prostitute there trying to trap Jesus. And when he walks in the house, remember the prostitute? She begins to wash his feet. 
And she bows and begins to kiss his feet, and she's crying because she knows she's in the presence of someone much greater than herself. Remember what Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee? He says, Simon, she's in tears because she knows she's been forgiven much. And all you want to do essentially is shake my hand. He that is forgiven much loves much. And he that is forgiven little loves little. When we think about our position in the gospel and our service for the Lord, we do not approach our city, we don't approach our neighbors with the effect that we are worthy to do so, but we minister knowing that God has forgiven us. How in the world can we not love and serve other people in the gospel? That's gospel motivation. I love what the Lord is doing at Bible Center, the people that God is working in. But if you stop to look around and see the people at Bible Center, God is growing a people of recovering alcoholics, recovering workaholics, recovering foodaholics. God is calling a people to himself, people who struggle with heterosexual sin and homosexual sin and people recovering from drug abuse and stealing and people-pleasing and legalism. What message does God have for us beyond salvation? He tells us in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Verse 18, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Here's my main encouragement to us who are on this journey together. It's simply this. Let's share our salvation story with somebody else this week. Let's share our salvation story with somebody else this week. When I was four or five years old, I went and talked to my mom about what it meant to be saved. Mom took her Bible and we knelt down beside our fireplace. And I remember praying to receive Jesus Christ to forgive my sins. I knew, I just knew when I got up that God had made me a Christian, even though I was only five But you know, as kids do, you begin to grow and learn more about God. So by the time I was 10, I really began to wonder, did I really pray the right words? And so every time the pastor would give the invitation, I would pray, oh Lord, if I'm not saved, help me to be saved. Now when you're 5 and 10, you really don't have much of a story, right? I mean, what are you going to say? You know, God saved me out of a life of crime. God, you know, it was really, really, really bad. I was just in the depths of despair. But I was 10 and I knew I needed a Savior. And then in my early 20s, 22, 23, uh, my wife and I began to study what grace was about and how that God had given us great in spite of our, grace in spite of ourselves. I say that's when I had my grace awakening. It was almost like being saved again. When I get to heaven, I'm pretty sure that my salvation date's probably when I was five. Pretty sure. But it may have been when I was 10. It may have been when I was 15. You say, Matt, how do you know for sure you're saved? I don't know for sure I'm saved because of the words I prayed or because of how I felt when I got up off my knees. You know how I know I'm saved? Because the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I know I have a salvation story because what God has promised to me. And if you know you have a salvation story, Let me encourage you to share it, God's promises to you with everybody you know this week. Paul in this text shared his story 
and it gave Timothy the courage to go forward. And I'm convinced as you share your story, God will give people in Bible Center the courage to keep moving forward. Let's pray that God gives us the opportunities to do that this week. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you for the gospel hope and gospel humility that you're bringing about. But Lord, we can't do this with our programs, with our organization, with our strategies. We can only do this in the power of the gospel. So I pray that you would bless many conversations this week with family members, with neighbors, with friends. Help us to share our gospel story like Paul did and fight the good fight of faith so that others may know the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us wisdom and show us with whom we should speak. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today and the Lord has spoken to your heart about your need for Christ. Would you pray and receive Jesus right where you are? In a moment, I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you want to follow Jesus with your life, you say, the gospel made sense. He climbed that tree for me. Will you pray this prayer with me right there where you sit? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. But I believe you loved me and died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again the third day. I want you to be the master and savior of my life. Make me a Christian. Give me a story to share. And help me to share it. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, would you let a pastor know before you leave? We have men and women in the living room. We have a pastor down front. I'll be out in the gathering space. Would you just let us know? I prayed that prayer. I want to follow Christ. We'll follow up with you this week. Christian, as we take just a minute before we sing one last chorus, ask the Lord, who can I share my story with? To whom can I give my story this week? And then we'll pray.